Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast where we give new life to old books. Yes, hello and welcome to episode nine of It's Lit But Is It Funny, the podcast where we apply the feather of comedy to the naked feet of literature and step back sharply to avoid getting kicked in the head. My name is Jonathan Pinnock, and I'm the author of the Mathematical Mystery Series of Comic Thrillers published by Farago Books. Shades of Douglas Adams, according to Scott Pack, oddly enough, but then again, what does he know? And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And I put it to you, sir, you are not John Mitchinson, and you have led me here under false pretenses. This is no, this isn't backlisted. Yes, I'm sorry about that. It was, uh, it was all a trick. But... Um... We've got you now, so. Uh, well, it's very was... nice, very nice to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me onto an, a, a different podcast, but uh, also one about books. Absolutely, I mean, it, it basically backlisted is pretty much the best podcast out there, and the one to which we minnows must aspire. It really is one of those things where you come away after listening to an episode, not only greatly entertained, but with a feeling that your brain is maybe half a dozen grams heavier as a result. So this is a bit like going in for some minor op and finding out the hospital radio has John Peel on as guest DJ. <laughs> it's absurdly <laughs> flattering. It's absurdly <laughs> flattering. It's just, I'm not, actually, I'm not sure if they, they have hospital radio. I don't think they have hospital radio anymore. And John Peel's been dead for 16 years. So it's a pretty useless analogy. That's our, anyway. that's our, that's our target market, though, isn't it? Be honest. <laughs> the old fellows who listen to this. Anyway, go on. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Anyway, uh, welcome, welcome aboard. Uh, we'll have a talk a bit later on about, uh, I really want to talk a little bit about um, uh, The Year of Reading Dangerously and also Backlisted, but I think we'd start off by looking at the book that uh, Andy's chosen to discuss, which is Douglas Adams' only non-fiction book, Last Chance to See, co-written with the zoologist Mark Carwardine. So would you like to kick things off by describing what the book is about and why you've chosen to talk about it? Uh, yes. OK, so Last Chance to See by Douglas Adams and Mark Carwardine, as you say, was published in 1990, I think, 89, 90. Yeah, and right. it's a non-fiction book where Douglas and Mark set out on a series of expeditions to find endangered species, species that were endangered in the mid 1980s. Uh, well, we'll get on to that. And those species include a parrot called the Kakapo and the Yangtze River dolphin and the northern white rhino and what's described here as a crappy old fruit bat. And it's a fascinating mixture of, it's like three or four books in one. It's a, a book about nature with a, an emphasis on conservation. It's travel writing, actually. When I mm, went back to it, yeah. I thought, oh, this is interesting. This is, this is much more in the 80s bracket than I had appreciated. 
when I first started. It's true, that 1980s being the great boom time for travel writing. Mm. And it's also Douglas Adams' comic gift Mm. on full display, his aptitude for prose, the way he puts prose together, which is why I was so interested to and pleased to be invited to come and discuss the book with you, because actually... In a way, I think Last Chance to See, I don't, I'm not sure if it's Douglas Adams' best book. It's one of his best books. He thought it was his best book. But it's the one that I feel is the least discussed and therefore the one most interesting to see how, how he goes about making you laugh. And the one that's closest to his description of Woodhouse, he wrote an introduction which is reproduced in The Salmon and Doubt for, I think, Sunset at Blandings. Mm. And in that, he describes mm. Woodhouse. He said, well, what are Woodhouse's books about? In a sense, it doesn't matter because what Woodhouse is concerned with is playing pure word music. Mm. And I think that is the great strength of Last Chance to See. I mean, it is important. It's clearly greatly important to Douglas as a person that it's about the conservation of rare species and ecological issues. But actually what matters more is, in terms of the book itself, the subject seems to have freed him up from whatever constraints he may have felt in other areas of his writing to just, to just create sentence after paragraph, after page, after chapter of superb superb comic prose you know yeah, and I mean, I, in that regard in that regard it's a textbook as well so it's all those different types of book gathered together yeah. in one yeah because he's freed from the necessity to provide any sort of plot and the i mean the things he's describing he's i mean the, the animals he describes he applies the same sort of style to as describing some alien or the Asgoths of Korea or whatever it's the same kind of thing that he's doing with them yes I think that's true <clears throat> up to a point but I also think he has got less I, I think you're right I, I, I would say there's enough there's just enough plot and the plot is me and my friend set out to find an animal yeah we do or don't find it mm. end of chapter Mm. That, I think, is what's freeing him up. It's incredible to me that it doesn't feel padded, but it doesn't feel padded. And the reason it doesn't feel padded is because although he's got nothing to write about aside from that, he's so delighted, it seems to me, to have sort of that, that sense of what Rob Manuel was just saying on Twitter, that sense of just sort of bumbling around the world, looking at things, finding them amusing and writing about them. It's funny. Mm. It's a sort of pre-Bryson-y Bryson. Or, or, yes. or it's Bryson at the same time. I think The Lost Continent is published in 1888-89. That's the first one, isn't it? I think. Yeah. And they, they certainly have got something similar. The nicest, uh, I mean, you know, far be it from me to et cetera, et cetera. But one of the nicest reviews for one of my books that I ever got was someone reviewed my first book and said, Andy Miller writes so well that he could make shopping at Sainsbury's sound amusing <laughs> and now people might agree or disagree with that but I certainly love the idea of writing about nothing or nearly nothing and making it funny and Douglas although he's a writer who whose 
it seems to me the discussion of his work, the ideas within his work, uh, while ideas are important, the discussion of the ideas within his work or his ability to tell the future and all that stuff actually is not in proportion to what made him a brilliant comic writer. And what made him a brilliant comic writer is the ability to weave that, that word music he, and he was talking about about Woodhouse and I would apply to him. Mm. I mean, I've got, can I read you a bit here? Yeah, go ahead. So this is from the this is from the first proper chapter, which is called "Here Be Chickens," and that is about that's doing a lot of um, setting up. Uh, I think I'm right in saying yes, because the first chapter is Twig Technology, which is like an introduction, mm. and the second chapter is doing a lot of setting up. It's called "Here Be Chickens," and it's about them going to look for the Komodo dragon, which is one of the better known uh, animals discussed in this book. And what's happening here is that Douglas Adams's party have deposited some chickens uh, which they brought with them while they go in and fill out the paperwork which will then allow them mm. to see the komodo dragon and uh, they've just heard a sound from outside it was the sound of distressed chickens our chickens we rushed outside the stuffed dragon was attacking our chickens it had one of them in its mouth and was shaking it but as soon as it saw us and others closing in it scurried rapidly round the corner of the building and off across the clearing behind in a cloud of dust dragging the other distraught chickens tumbling along in the dust behind it, still tethered together with the string and screeching. After the dragon had put about 30 yards between it and us, it paused, and with a vicious jerk of its head, bit through the string, releasing the other three chickens, which scrambled off towards the trees, shrieking and screaming and running in ever-decreasing circles as park guards careered after them, trying to round them up. The dragon, relieved of its excess chickens, galloped off into thick undergrowth. With a lot of after you, no, after you, we ran carefully towards where it had disappeared and arrived breathless and a little nervous. We peered in. The undergrowth covered a large bank and the dragon had crawled up the bank and stopped. The thick vegetation prevented us getting closer than a yard from the thing, but we weren't trying terribly hard. It lay there quite still. Protruding from between its jaws was the back end of the chicken, its scrawny legs quietly working the air. The dragon lizard watched us unconcernedly with the one eye that was turned towards us, a round, dark brown eye. There is something profoundly disturbing about watching an eye that is watching you, particularly when the eye that is watching you is almost the same size as your eye and the thing it is watching you out of is a lizard. Now, that final sentence that I've just read there, which I'm now going to read again, there is something profoundly disturbing about watching an eye that is watching you, particularly when the eye that is watching you is almost the same size as your eye, and the thing it is watching you out of is a lizard. That sentence is perfect. It that is, is a brilliant. perfect sentence. Yeah. And listeners, I am an expert, so you can trust me. <laughs> that is a perfect sentence. And one of the reasons I think it's so perfect, apart from the obvious little trademark Adams slight over enunciation of a factual point, that's the thing Douglas Adams likes to do. Mm. The thing that he's watching you out of is a lizard. One of the things that makes that sentence so beautiful is the rhythm of it. I could yeah. almost just be saying syllables. I could be going ba 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 It's so satisfying. It's it's musical. So much comic writing is music. Yeah, absolutely. You know, 
pause rhythm, a triangulation between the sound of it in your head, the subject of it, and, and the right word, the sense that the word is the absolute perfect landing place for a laugh or a, or a breath. Or the joke, the joke of, it seems to me a lot of people never understand, quite understand this. The joke doesn't play purely on the idea. Mm. The idea is one point of the triangle, you know, and the rhythm is the other point, but the, the vocabulary, the word, right down to the word, how the joke, that's, that's how a joke lands. And yeah. so, so uh, this book, rereading it, just seemed overflowing with examples of Douglas Adams doing that thing that he was so brilliant at and obviously it's very it's bittersweet to read it now I was quite taken aback I mean firstly because Douglas Adams was so young when he died mm. only 49 um, <laughs> and 20 years ago 20 years ago a few weeks ago but also the book ends with him saying something along the lines of, I don't think any of these animals are in trouble, really. I think we're in trouble. And reading that 30 years ago, you probably would have thought, yeah, yeah, I suppose we probably are. Mm -hmm. Reading it now, I kind of thought, wow, that's so, that's so ahead of its time in terms mm -hmm. of understanding what would happen to the ecosystem. It seems a funny thing to say because we're so at ease with that idea now, unfortunately. You know, the idea that if you keep taking bits out of the ecosystem, if you keep taking straws away, at some point, the whole thing is going to collapse. But then it was a less current idea. Uh, it was a forward thinking idea. So yet again, even in this book that in theory isn't futurology or science fiction or rune reading, there it is. There it is right on the on the last page. Interestingly, uh, if you go back to... 10 years or so previously, you can find this sentence. Meanwhile, the natural forces on the planet Vogsphere had been working overtime to make up for their earlier blunder. They brought forth scintillating jeweled scuttling crabs, which the Vogons ate, smashing their shells with iron mallets. Tall aspiring trees of breathtaking slenderness and colour, which the Vogons cut down and burnt the crab meat with. Elegant gazelle-like creatures with silken coats and dewy eyes, which the Vogons would catch and sit on. There were no use as transport because their backs would snap instantly, but the Vogons sat on them anyway. And I think that there's that lovely that, that line. Figures, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. There's that lovely line, Arthur. It's a little throwaway line at the end of the first radio series. So this must be in book. It must be in the restaurant at the end of the universe, the second novel, mm. where they're stranded temporarily on uh, on the planet Fintle Waddlewicks aka the earth mm. and the 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 be the 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 passengers on the beark who have crash landed and colonized the planet ford and arthur have broken away from them and the passengers on the beark the new colonists are busy burning down all the forests to stabilize the economy which is now mm. leaf based if i remember rightly <laughs> yeah. and and there's a lovely shot of there. There, it's just swelling on the soundtrack. Is what a wonderful world by Louis Armstrong. Yeah. And Arthur says to Ford, "Look, it's beautiful. This place is so beautiful. The sunset, the greenery, the burning forests. <laughs> I mean, that's 
it's sort of so that sense clearly ecology is not something that Douglas Adams caught or, or converted to it is built into the project isn't it the idea that, yeah, yeah, that uh, one species wipes out another species uh, if it can it's just struck me rather extraordinary that that's the whole thing about burning leaves to to balance the, the currency it's I and mean, it's literally like how cryptocurrency is going to wreck the environment. You never have to. Yeah. The thing is, you only have to throw a rock in a in a Douglas Adams book and you'll hit yeah. some surprising yeah. truth, which which he minted yeah. 50, 40 years ago. So but I wonder, did you. So, Jonathan, were you an early adopter of hitchhikers? When did you come on board? Oh, now, now. Mm, mm. What I can say it is. I, I, I went to Cambridge University in October 1974. In November 1974, one evening, it's about 11 o'clock in the evening, uh, we, a bunch of friends and I went off to see a review just because it seemed to be something that people did. And there were these, these sort of late reviews at the, was it the ADC Theatre, I can't what it was called. And it was called Cerberus, the Three-Headed Review. Mm-hmm. And it was, it, was, it was pretty good. And uh, I and no idea who it was who'd done it until a few years later, someone happened to mention, did you ever see that Cerberus 3 review? Do you know who was in that? It was Douglas Adams. And <laughs> that was the last review that Adam Smith Adams did. Adam Smith Adams, yes, and, okay, yeah. Yeah, nice. and, right. and I can't remember much of it. There was one slightly iffy sketch uh, which involved someone dressed up in kimono or something, auditioning to take part in some kind of review. And whatever question they were asked, they just said, no, in a somewhat iffy Japanese accent. Great. Different times. And, yeah, different times. Different times. <laughs> yeah. And at the end of it, so what was that all about? Oh, it's Japanese no theatre. And oh, that was literally dear. the joke. Oh, dear, oh, dear. <laughs> okay well you know okay moving on no the, the, the end the end of it was, was was rather unusual because at the end of it i do remember one of the cast and i'm looking back on he was a tall guy so almost certainly was douglas adams himself he just came to the front of the the, the stage and lay down on a bench and the lights came up and no one knew really what to do and so eventually People just gave up and filed out, and that was it. Uh, well, so... it was the early it was the early seventies. You know, there's still kind <laughs> of the, there's still kind of the vestiges of a happening uh, yeah. taking place, right? Or, or, yeah. or some kind of theatrical event. What an exciting thing, though! What an exciting thing to have been in the the yeah. pre. Well, so, not, so not you haven't, what, what, but what you haven't done, Jonathan, is you haven't actually answered my question. No. Okay. Is, question. So, okay. The, so you actual, had actual hitch, hitchhikers. I wasn't. I wasn't really done. For some reason, I missed the first showing of the first series, and, and lots of people I knew were raving about it, and yeah. I missed out on it. Then the first one I actually heard was. Uh, there was a Christmas Christmas special, which was the one between Fit the First and Fit the Second. That's right. Basically episode seven, if you like. Yeah. And I heard it. Oh, that's great. I like that. I recorded it, I think. And 
then it was then the second series was going out and they repeated the whole of the first one, I think, before it. And that's mm-hmm. the which I taped it off the radio. I do remember a whole load of us were, were, were sort of obsessed with it with the second because the, se- the second series they did over five consecutive evenings. I'm pretty certain they did. And so it had to be quite quite uh, organized to actually get out the tape record and take them all. And I know a friend of ours at the time, one, one of the lot, he, he, he'd, um, he invited us, several of us around, around for supper at his place. And uh, he wasn't into this sort of thing at all. And I think he was rather upset that we all turned up about an hour late because we'd been making sure that this thing was recorded properly. So, um, but then I was, I was full on, full on fan. I missed out on going to see the ICA production of it. And I did see that, did go to the Notorious Rainbow production. Mm-hmm. And yep. yeah. it, it was disappointing. I, I do, do remember that the, the drinks they served in the intervals, which were Panaglactic Gargle Blasters, which were served in miniature uh, chemistry flasks, which right. are what they called. Mm-hmm. Um, blue Curacao. What the hell else was it? Was it gin or something? And a silver skin onion chucked in as well. It's quite disgusting. Well, you know. Uh, <laughs> That's the, was, Ken, was, that, the ICA one is the Ken Campbell one, isn't it? Is yeah, that the, well, there is was that the, the, the Ken, Ken Campbell also did, did the uh, the rainbow one, right? Uh, the the venue's trans- too big, and yeah, 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 it did, didn't transfer at all. Um, they had lasers and stuff, which is all good fun. But I think it's really, I mean, the thing is, we just take we take so many things to do with hitchhikers for granted, and in some ways, yeah. I, uh, the reason that I wanted to talk about Last Chance to See. You know, Doug, anyone who's read uh, my last book, uh, The Year of Reading Dangerously, will know, mm. because I put it all in there, what a, a yeah. found influence Douglas Adams had on my uh, on my life, not just on my career, on my life, uh, in fact. And, I mean, I, I was a kid when Hitchhikers was first on the radio. I heard it on the repeat. I didn't hear it when it very first went out, but I heard it on the repeat and I, like you, taped the whole thing and taped the second series on the first go round and then played those tapes over and over and over again. If you if you switched me off and put your ear to my head, you would hear bits of series two playing on a loop still. Yeah. I, every last um, syllable, intonation, port, everything. And for me, the radio series is the, yeah, the radio series is probably my favourite iteration. Oh, it is. Yeah. It and is. Yeah. but I bought the I bought the first Hitchhiker's paperback. It was a paperback original. Mm. I, I'm pretty sure I must have bought it. Well, I know I bought it in the week of publication. I can't guarantee it was the day of publication. And I remember reading it that afternoon, effectively, and getting my mum to take me back to Smith's in Croydon the next day to pick up the the next volume, The Restaurant at the End of the Universe. I can remember asking for it and them looking it up and going, no, it isn't, because I hadn't understood that he hadn't written it yet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, again, that those books, 
I actually I've read that I read them so many times now that I've sort of ruined them for myself. <laughs> I mean, I do think they're funny. In some ways, I think they've dated partly not through their own fault. I think the presence of science fiction in the world is significantly different from how it was in the 1970s into the 80s. And that does make a different context, does make a difference to how you read them. You know, they weren't throwbacks to anything when you read them then, but I slightly suspect they are now. Whereas Last Chance to See, for instance, I can still detect the energy, the, the comic energy and the affection that I have for Douglas when I when I read that now it's still it hasn't it hasn't been strip mined by me and and you and everyone we know for all all possible meaning so i'm a great believer in that i mean we've done podcasts about other writers i like or we talked about the beatles the beatles are another example of this blokes who sort of ruined the beatles um (laughs) by wanting to know everything and sort of rendering them almost bled the life out of it and I'm very interested in finding those places where writers or pop groups or 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 whatever or films still can give you a little frisson of that original disruptive energy and I think in the case of Douglas you have to go pretty far to find it now and weirdly isn't it weirdly isn't it I think last chance to see I mean rereading it over the weekend I was just struck goodness this is so contemporary for for sad reasons but the humor in it hasn't really dated i think i think you might write some of the travel stuff differently now yeah i mean some um, of, it's probably a it's, few it's, stereotypes it's, knocking it's, about that yeah, i think you wouldn't it, it, you wouldn't go for now but nothing no, it, nothing it, it, bad it, but yeah but a bit well, lazy so, so, maybe. same with same with bryson to some extent that, that right yeah that, you know that, that, that aspect has dated a bit but I mean, no, you're right. The rest of it is it's, it's so contemporary. I mean, one of the other things that I really love about Adams is I, I, I wrote about this in the year of reading Dangerously. One of the ways he influenced me was he was incredibly influential on what on what it on what being a writer would be like. And mm. that seemed to involve not actually doing much writing. You know what I mean? It, <laughs> the idea that what you did was sit around and find it very difficult and play a, one of your favourite records a lot and have an extra bath or make yourself a Marmite sandwich if you came up with anything good. <laughs> that proved to be... That's another prediction that proves to be entirely accurate. <laughs> but also, he's so good when you can find these bits and pieces about writing tips. He's so... Um, there's a brilliant story. I don't know if you ever heard this, but someone said that they... they I was I read this on a message board somewhere. I wish I could remember who this was. If anyone listening to this knows who, who this story who wrote this up let me know because because it's so brilliant when they were a kid they had written a doctor who story and they'd sent it into the doctor who office saying i am interested in writing a story for doctor who and i wonder whether you the doctor who production team would be interested in making my story and it was in the era when douglas was working as the script editor on doctor who which is which was for uh tom baker's penultimate season i think mm. And Adams wrote back to this kid, but he didn't write back saying, well, you're too young or no, we have all the scripts we need. He'd read the whole thing and he critiqued it and he gave him real notes on it. And one of the things that he said in it was your plot is way too convoluted here 
you simply could have, you know, the spaceship crash. What you've done in your script is burn down a house in order to boil an egg. <laughs> and that, isn't that a brilliant phrase? Isn't that phrase brilliant? Yeah. Burn, burn down a house to boil an egg. I think about that all the time. In terms of getting the ratio right, we were talking about earlier. Mm. You know, what is the ratio of idea to plot to the style in which you're trying to express it? Mm. You know, if you've got a paragraph to play with, how good is the joke that you're trying to get to? How good is the payoff that you're trying to get to? How much stuff do you need to weave into it to make that land? Like the bit we read earlier, the bit I read about the Komodo dragon, mm. in a sense, everything is leading up to that line about the eye, what, the thing it is watching you out of is a lizard. Mm. You know, I recognise that as a writer. There's a lot of neutral, straightforward language preceding that because mm. he knows how good that line is and he knows he's got the rhythm of it right. So, yeah. so for at least three or four paragraphs, everything about is keeping you, is holding you in a neutral place so it, when it gets to the payoff, you really, really feel it. If that had been a series of sentences that... Um, ornate, you 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 tune out. You wouldn't you wouldn't spot anything, and the payoff wouldn't be worth it. So what he's conspicuously not doing there is is burning down the house. <laughs> he's um, I don't know what we say. He's putting it on a low simmer, isn't he? And then he's turning <laughs> up the gas at the end. Sorry, Douglas Adams. Yeah. <laughs> Should you be able to pick this up? Um, and so I think I think he is what you were saying, Jonathan, about the lack of plot. I mean, do you think he gets trapped as a writer mm. by, by the hitchhiker's edifice? I do wonder that. I mean, the, the, I don't know. I, I've, it, it, it's quite a long time since I, since I read the, the hitchhiker books. And I, I know I had a feeling that, that they were tailing off. And I never really got into Dirk Gently either. Um, well, I'll give, let me give you my capsule account. <laughs> okay, go on. <laughs> uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to Galaxy, the restaurant at the end of the universe, and Life, the Universe, and Everything are all terrific. And of them, mm. I, my favourite is Life, the Universe, and Everything, the third one. Mm. And then So Long and Thanks for All the Fish is really terrible. Sorry, everyone who loves that book. <laughs> it's terrible. And uh, you, can, you can really feel the misery in which it was written, which we might talk about in a bit. And then he does the two Dirk Gently books. I prefer the long time, long dark tea time of the soul to Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. And he's, we've got to chuck in the meaning of Liff somewhere there as well with John Lloyd. Mm. Uh, and then he writes the last Hitchhiker's book, though it wasn't intended to be the last one. Well, it probably was when he was writing it, but then he was changed his mind again, which is mostly harmless. Yeah. And that that is a very frustrating read. I, I loved that at the time. When it came out, I loved it. The last time I read it, I, I thought, oh, I don't know, this is, there's some amazing jokes in it, which um, inspired jokes in it, which I don't think there are many of in So Long and Thanks for All the Fish. But I wonder, I slightly got the feeling that Adams, by the early 90s, was thinking to himself, okay, my, what, the way I deal with this is to treat this as the professional job which allows me to do all these other things, you know, that I'm actually mm. slightly more interested in. <laughs> and um, well, it's true, isn't it? Last chance to see yeah. one of the re one of the reasons oh, God, why yeah. that's a, a, why that's a better book, in my opinion, is he's so much more interested in mm. what he's writing about than he is in 
you know, I, it may well be that his enthusiasm for new scientific ideas was at its peak in those first few years when he was writing Hitchhikers. And that was a long time previously, you know, that's in the mid to late 1970s. Mm. And by the early 90s, it, it's, it's, I'm not saying he wasn't interested in those things, but it would be in, totally within the normal development of a writer's life and a thinker's life to seek new ideas to stimulate you and, and make their way into your work. So, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I say in, uh, in, in my book, I, I get the sense that Adams became more used to going around being Douglas Adams. I think that was a, a, a the you know going out there and doing the gig and and writing the kind of book. I think he got more uh, easy in his own skin as he got older mm. doing those things. Well, I I, I listened to um, a preparation for this yesterday. I'd I, I listened all the way through to there's a, do you ever get that there's a three CD set of Douglas Adams at the BBC? Yeah, I know. Yeah, cool. And it's that links were by Simon Jones. Mm -hmm. It, it, it sort of trolls over all sorts of odd bits and pieces. I just immerse myself. And what, what comes over from a lot of that is that he was a frustrated performer. Mm, mm -hmm. And um, the reason that he got into, the, the reason that they set up Adam Smith Adams was because their material kept being frozen out of um, footlights and all that sort of thing. And yeah, he, he always wanted yeah. to, to, to perform. Also, the thing about Adams is, and this is not a criticism it's just a statement of fact he knew he was good mm. you know he had done he was prodigiously good at school at writing he was told he was prodigiously good he was ambitious and he ends up writing with graham chapman and appearing in, in monty <laughs> python and you don't do that yeah. that doesn't you, that doesn't get to happen to you by you being a shrinking violet or you going no, no. after you Right. No, 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 so he no. knew he knew he was good and he had the right connections and all this stuff. Well, simultaneously, he, he would often say, I can't do it. You know, I can't. Mm. He'd have those moments where he got blocked because he couldn't. But the reason he got blocked, it seems to me, is he needed to he needed to be excited by the idea he was writing about. And for a lot of the 80s, he's he's not doing that. He's trying to he's trying to replicate he doesn't know. Nobody knows why the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is the phenomenal success it is. I mean, that's it comes out in paperback. Mm. It's a paperback original. If mm. they'd known it was going to be a success, I'm not being funny, it would have come out as a hardback and they would have yeah. made a lot more oh, yeah. money. <laughs> but it, it comes out, it goes straight sure. to the top of the bestseller list in week one. And it, and it yeah. doesn't just do it in the UK. Mm. Where, where arguably it's got the radio for, you know, following win. It does it in the States and then it does it everywhere else in the world. So it's yeah. one of those phenomenal successes that the author is left thinking, what, how did I do that? What do I yeah. do? Do I write what I want or do I write what they want? And you get into a nightmare of second guessing. So I think that's probably what happens to Douglas Adams in the 80s. And then he's, he's come, he comes out of that. Also, the other great thing about Hitchhikers early on was the sheer fecundity of Adam's writing and the number of different formats it appeared in, in which <laughs> Adam's wrote, for which Adam's wrote new material. It's, it's jaw-dropping. He writes the radio series, then he rewrites it all for the books. 
and he rewrites it for the TV and he rewrites it for the film scripts and he rewrites it for the original text-based video game. Did you ever play that? No, I didn't. No. Okay, that was that is spectacular. Uh, it's available to play online now, of course, but there's right. so much new text in it and there's so many new jokes in it and it's so ridiculously hard. <laughs> it's piss-takingly <laughs> difficult, right? So the, so the motivation to get to the next stage of it all the time is the knowledge that you're not just getting recycled jokes for the sixth time around. There's, there's new stuff in there all the time. So, and I would, I would diagnose that as being an attempt to stave off boredom or an attempt to not engage fully with the terror of a new idea. Those Dirt Gently books are, are, the first one is repurposed Doctor Who script called Sharda. Yes, Sharda. The second yeah. one is new stuff. But, in, but Douglas, you know, his ability to turn out new material in the 80s is actually quite spotty. What he's very good at is going back to what he's already written and ringing out new variations on it. He, and I mean, last he was chance always... to see, sorry, I, and last yeah, chance to see, one of the, the bittersweet things about reading it now is it feels so full of energy. It feels yeah. like a writer has suddenly hit a new, a new seam, which, they, which they're thinking to themselves, oh my goodness, I could do this. This mm. could be a hot, and it's not <laughs> the ecological thing. It's the going places, looking yeah. at things, writing down what happens and making it funny. You know, it, it's it, he's absolved of the responsibility, as you say, of having to deal with too much plot or if he wants to condense an idea, he can do it for fun, not as a kind of trademark or as a tour de force of technique. It, it's it, there's so much air in it. I always think the comic writing actually far be it for me to criticize P.G. Woodhouse. But sometimes I have to put air into a Woodhouse book by putting it down after 20 pages and picking it up again two days later. Mm. You, you can have too much of a good thing. And the same rhythm played re relentlessly after a while becomes irritating. But this book, Last Chance to See, I think Douglas Adams is totally, I mean, that's what's so sad about it. Mm. You know, it's, it's melancholy to read because of its subject matter and the elements that have sadly come true but it's also melancholy to read because you know he didn't get another go round for this for this type of writing i can see him finding little uh, he's like uh, he, he could have been like a.a a. milne a.a a. milne was a very funny writer who accidentally wrote two of the best children's books ever but if you go to his <coughs> his punch columns they are often about nothing they, they are, he'll say to himself, to the reader, he'll say, well, uh, it's time to write another column. Uh, I've got to fill up 800 words. What can I see from my desk? Oh, there's a goldfish over there. And he does 800 words on the goldfish. Mm. And guess what? They're really funny. And the reason they're really funny is because he's, there's enough space and enough air and he understands the rhythm enough to just, to just turn it into music. Mm. Yeah doesn't really connect with that but what, what I was saying earlier was was that he was never that prolific before he suddenly had Hitchhikers as, as a success. Before that he was trying to get various he was touting various things around the BBC and he was engaged to write some sketches for the Burkis Way mm -hmm. and only about I think about two of those made it into into actually production because he just never got around to delivering them 
and he couldn't cope That's with the, cope with the deadline. Mm. Yeah, um, but on the basis of, I mean, he got, I think he got the sort of the attention of people at the BBC or by on the basis of maybe just a couple of sketches or so. There's a, have you ever heard the failed kamikaze pilot sketch? I'm familiar with that one, yes. <laughs> Again, that's probably of its time. It is, but also but it's, it's really good. It's, it's, the it's thing about beautiful that the way it just keeps yeah. on building and yeah, building yeah. and building and building. It gets more and more absurd. It, it, that's again, a there's, really... There's a wonderful rhythm to it. Exactly. That's a really well-written sketch. Yeah. That, that's a really, a really... But it's also post-Python. Very interesting. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's, it's very much in that mode. That becomes the dominant mode in sketch writing for, you know, a good twenty years, mm. if not long. I mean, it, it is really, isn't it? Until alternative, even alternative. Even if you look at, you look at the young ones now. That in, in retrospect, there's all sorts of Pythony oh, things yeah. in that. Um, but no, you're right. But also, he has a, he seems to have a sort of manic displacement thing going on, where he takes on too many jobs. Yeah. So he's writing with Graham Chapman, which in and of itself must have been a nightmare. Well, that must, knowing that's what a, we know that's now. a dangerous thing to do, isn't it? Right, exactly. And he's and he's uh, uh, he's working as a producer on the BBC, and yeah. he's heavily involved with the production of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, even though he isn't the producer. And he's writing the book, and he's and he's taken on being the script editor of Doctor Who in an era where certain of the performers are at their least disciplined <laughs> and the show is in a kind of post Mary Whitehouse slump so they're trying yeah. to famously replace violence with humor mm. he he, see, he he seems to have this he seems to have this brilliant talent for walking into new traps without realizing their traps yeah. and yeah. then and then walking out again you know the story about him writing um, So Long and Thanks for All the Fish, don't you? So the novel So Long and Thanks for All the Fish, his agent Ed Victor sold to Sonny Meta, the legendary US publisher, mm. for a huge amount of money. Mm. And Adams kept missing deadlines. And as we know, the joke about yeah. I love deadlines, I know yeah. I love the sound they made, they go rushing past. And Douglas built that into his self-mythology that, you know, this lovable rogue who kept missing deadlines and he's so sorry he didn't mean to. Actually, the people who have to deal with that, I can tell you from having been a publisher myself, if you mm. are on if you are on the publishing end of that, it is a nightmare. Yeah. I, I, you I do not find yeah. it charming. And because so much money was riding on the fourth Hitchhiker's novel and Douglas kept missing deadlines, Sonny Meta rented a hotel room in oh. New York, a suite. They kidnapped him, basically. And, yeah. and effectively stuck yeah. Douglas in a room for three weeks <laughs> and sat in the other room and yeah. wouldn't, let them, wouldn't let him out. And this was yeah. with Adams, clearly, with Adams' complicity. But Adams said, if this book's going to be written, and, and, and famously, of course, <laughs> Adams would do is, you know, the closer it got to the deadline, the harder he worked and mm. the less he had to hand over because <laughs> he knew perfectly well what represented good work and he couldn't just hack it out however much easier it might have been to do so and so one of the reasons uh, I think so long and thanks for all the fish feels kind of sour and unfinished and jittery is because it isn't finished and he was quite sour and jittery when he wrote it in that <laughs> hotel room in New York it's very hard to hide that and that's why I say I think mostly harmless when that comes around feels like a more professional 
I mean, I, it doesn't quite come off, but it, it feels he's more at ease with doing it, I, I think, mm. is the is the point. Mm. And he's also proved he can do it in Dirt Gently and Long Dark Two Time of the Soul and and Last Chance to See. So he it isn't the same. Perhaps Last Chance to See frees him up a bit to go back to Hitchhikers and have new ideas and make new jokes. Mm. Uh, but uh, anyway... What a pleasure to revisit it. It's very good to, to read this again. I don't think I would have done... Uh, I have so many other things to read because of work and of backlisted and reviewing and whatever. Um, so a, a tiny violin playing for me there. But uh, <laughs> it was such a pleasure to spend a few days going back to this. Actually, yeah, if anything, yeah. I, think it was, I think it was even... This is a funny thing to say. I, I, I feel very affectionate towards that book. Going back to it, I think it was better than I thought it, than I remembered it as being. Mm. It made me laugh all the time mm. yeah. not in a kind of ah good not in a kind of ah good old douglas way in a genuine that's really funny <laughs> that, that was really funny so yeah thank you jonathan what a pleasure well i th thank you for um for, for coming well th at this point i usually uh ask people about a bit about their their own work so if you're still up for that to uh, of course we talk a bit about that so you you've published had three three books published Tilting yeah. at Windmills about your problem with sport, which I've just That's started right. reading. Have you? Okay. Good. <laughs> Enjoy. That's nice. Like, good. I, I, I can sort of uh, sympathise with it with a lot of it. But, uh, okay, yeah. good. good. And um, you also wrote one of those uh, awesome 33 and a third books about the kinks of the Village Green Preservation Society. Yes, I did. Uh, yes, I did. I wrote that very quickly, uh, just after mm. Tilting at Windmills was published. And... Mm. Uh, then I took a very long break without meaning to before I <laughs> I published the Year of Reading Dangerously, partly because it just took me ages to to get it right. And maybe we can talk a bit about that in a minute. But yeah, so I, I did Tilting at Windmills, which is a book about how, how much I don't really like sports. And then I did a book about the kinks, which is a book about how much I do really like the kinks, <laughs> and which I definitely do. And, and then I did the Year of Reading Dangerously, which in a sense is a cross between those two things because I love books and I get frustrated with books and you know books have been my life either as a mm. reader or a writer or an editor or a bookseller or, or wherever they have and that is my life really but it's all books so so yeah but it's also about it's also about the paradox that you, you despite working in publishing you, you'd found yourself that you pretty much stopped reading books in your space time apart from <laughs> having just read the da Vinci Code if I remember that correctly yes well also we just had a child uh, yeah well so that obviously does, does any free time i had was, yeah. uh, any free time i had was taken up reading either competitors books from other mm. publishers which which you can't you don't read in it with an open mind because you resent them <laughs> or you and if, if you hear anyone say differently they're not telling the truth yeah or you or or i was reading books manuscripts really in those days actual mm. paper manuscripts mm -hmm. that publishers were sending or agent publishers agents were sending in the hope that i would like them and then they might make it through the uh, publishing process and and be published and the combination of those things you would think that if you're a publisher that uh, you could re you read all the time and you do read all the time but so little of what you read is what you might choose to read that's the point yeah and I really felt I'd lost my way I felt I'd lost my way I felt that here I was I spent all my time reading and I didn't really enjoy very much that I read 
I mean, I like that. I like the books that I publish, but I have to emphasize to people that to find those books, you have to read a lot of books you don't like because mm. that's just what human taste is. If you if you yeah, liked I'd... everything, you wouldn't have any taste, would you? You just go, oh, that's good. No. Well, I wasn't looking. The point is, I wasn't looking to write. I mean, I I, I hoped to write another book, but mm. I wasn't looking to write a book about reading. But what happened is, I, I to cut a long story short, you can read the long story in the book. But the short version is, I started re- I started reading some novels that I'd, I'd always meant to read, about a dozen of them, that I had at various points lied about having read, probably. Mm. And they were like The Master and Margarita and Middle March and communist manifesto and Anna Karenina maybe and whatever those first half dozen were and I had one of those famous light bulb moments we hear about Mm. where the effect on me was so dramatic in terms of me thinking oh my god this is what this is what I've been missing Mm. I do still like reading the problem is I'm just not reading the right books yeah. My, my, my childhood, adolescent, 20s love of reading was still there. I just managed to kill it, n- nearly kill it. And so after about a dozen of those books, I thought, I've got to write about this because the effect on me was really, really dramatic and real. So I, I, one of the problems I had when I was writing the book was making it feel real, actually. I knew it was real, mm. but I, I was worried that people would think it was contrived or had been done only for the purposes of writing the book. Um, And indeed, indeed when it was published, a couple of people in the reviews said that, but what can you do? You know, all I can do is put my hand on my heart and say it it came from there. It didn't come from... It it came over as as very authentic to me. Um, That's nice to hear. And also it's funny now when we... uh, So we, we went out... We approached publishers with that idea. I mean, it is a long time ago, mm. as I say, because it took me a long time to get it right or get it right to my satisfaction, inspired by Douglas Adams. <laughs> <laughs> Missing deadline after deadline. But most people just said, well, why would anyone want to read a book about books? Which seems absurd now, given how many mm. books about books there are around. I mean, I certainly wasn't the first person to do it. I'm not for a moment suggesting that. I wasn't even in the vanguard because by the time I actually finished the book, I've been, <laughs> I've been totally outpaced by a, a number of other really good writers. But books about books is a is a thing now. There's sections in bookshops which are you know books about reading or books about books, and there are some brilliant books out there. Kathy Renson Brick's recent book is terrific, and uh, Rick Kukowski's first book is really good. And oh, there are there are loads, there are loads. But I think uh, I think to bring to bring this round to to Douglas Adams. One of the things I wanted to write about is I needed a subject that I knew enough about and felt free enough with to bring out the best in the type of mm. prose I wanted to write and the type of funny stuff I wanted to write. Yeah, And okay. so that's why it ends up being, you know, about me and books. It isn't really an attempt to write a memoir, though it is a memoir. It's an attempt to play some word music based around based around stuff I knew about, and uh, each reader will have a different view of whether uh, whether it works or not, which is fine. But that that was the, that was that's the idea really. Communicate the the to communicate the the moment of realization that that 
of what books could mean in 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 my everyday life again if i put the effort in and also just to have a, a, a subject to wander around in and and think about and hopefully be funny about. Yeah, well, it, it is very funny. I'm particularly, I love that side-by-side -side comparison of Moby Dick with Da Vinci Code. That's, oh, thank you very much. <laughs> it's ridiculous, that bit. It's ridiculous. You know what? That took, that went through so many drafts hmm. because I thought, I still don't think it's funny enough. I still think if I went back to it now, <laughs> years after publication i could improve it mm. I, I wanted it to be like a, i wanted it to be undeniable that that presented with such a stupid idea a comparative reading of the da vinci code by dan brown and moby dick by herman melville that you would finish the comparative reading and genuinely think to yourself why has no one done that before <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and also because i just think the yeah. idea is quite funny so uh, yeah thank you that's very nice i'm glad you yeah. enjoyed that yeah, it, it, Dan Brown is, is the closest thing I ever get to guilty pleasure. I, I, I don't like the idea it's of guilty fine. pleasures. But, it's uh, fine. It, it, it's fine. It's totally fine. You know, I've got no... I, I would, have you ever read Digital Fortress? I would strongly recommend that because that has the single greatest paragraph in the, in, in the history of literature, mm. in my opinion, that where there's, he's got a chase going on across Seville and he actually pauses the narrative to explain for an entire paragraph the origins of marmalade. <laughs> That's classic brown. <laughs> Which is, you know, I've done my classic bloody research. Brown. You're going to have to suffer it. It's, 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 it's well, you know, you can't. <sighs> I, the thing about it is, I mean, I, uh, I feel, I always feel bad talking about this because I genuinely have no axe to grind against Dan Brown. Why would I? He don't, mm. he don't care about me. And I, 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 it's unfortunate that he is he is the test case I alighted yes. <laughs> to say how can something be so popular yet so bad mm. that's really what I wanted to get to and yeah. when I say so bad I don't mean it's not to my taste I mean it's demonstrably inept objectively bad yeah you know, and, and given that's yeah. my professional background as a mm. as a an editor, writer, reader, and reviewer, you know, uh, uh, I was genuinely fascinated to understand why fundamentally it doesn't matter that they're inept. It doesn't matter. That's the point. It mm. genuinely who cares really. You, me, and two thousand other snobs, and no one else. <laughs> you know, it. It. And so to try and explore that idea, or see whether it did matter, and it seemed to me that contrasting it with Moby Dick, a masterpiece which sold, which took something like seventy years to sell out its first edition of five thousand mm. copies, mm. and that's after a warehouse fire destroyed half the stock. <laughs> 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 so 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 it seemed to me that seemed to me to be the epitome of literary quality being so fine that it appealed mm. to almost no one mm. versus something which was demonstrably inept that was hugely successful yeah so so that's the, that was i think is the that's the the engine of that bit of the book mm. that's yeah. why i think that bit works if it does mm. work because yeah. it, there is a real straightforward idea there. You know, the idea that you could read the Da Vinci Code in 
in a couple of days mm. and get and and not be able to put it down which is indeed what happened with me and and get mm. to the end of it and think god that was terrible <laughs> and versus reading Moby Dick which took me you know it took me weeks and weeks it was really difficult but when I got well I mean, other people don't find it so difficult I clearly had a little bit of a problem with it but well, and, but yet when I got to the end of it and I could think about it and see the whole thing and look at it at arm's length, like instantly you think, well, yeah, so that's a masterpiece. It's not it's not the result of having actually slogged to the end of it. It's just your, your, your training and your gut. Both those things are going, well, that's obviously a work of art and that other one really isn't. And yet, I, and yet we can derive pleasure in different ways from both those types of book and types of reading. You know, not all books need to grip you. I, I, this is a thing that backlisted listeners will be aware that I'm always banging on about. Mm. I almost mistrust being gripped by a plot. I think I've been tricked when that happens. <laughs> I think the writer's done a number on me. Yeah, it's, they're distracting me with plot. I want to look at. I want to look at the prose. The prose is what I'm interested in. But that's me. I mean, our other readers will be different. Uh, we don't all read. That's a, a common misconception. The idea that all books can be compared with one another when, of course, they can't. The idea that we all read for the same reasons, which we don't. And that goes in both directions. If you want to read for plot, totally fine. But you, it goes the other way as well. If you if you, you should be able to free to express the fact that you don't necessarily read for story. I mean, I accept that when we were cavemen, we all sat round after a hard day's hunt and we passed on the folk memory from generation to generation via the medium of storytelling. But we're not cavemen anymore. There are opportunities now to do other more sophisticated forms of storytelling and to enjoy doing them and to enjoy reading them or hearing them or whatever. So, yes, yeah, so it was a it's it's a great gift, really, to have been had the opportunity to write about that in the year of reading dangerously. And still write about it, in fact. That's really what I'm interested in, in not just books, but music and films. And, yeah. you know, I always think Douglas Adams is fascinated in his best stuff, isn't he, by an idea or a scientific idea or whatever. And I think one of the breakthroughs I had in my writing was thinking it's OK to be enthused by the things you're enthusiastic about and try and communicate that to people, because that is actually where you get a lot of your creative energy from. Yeah. I mean, I, my first book, Tilting at Windmills, which is a book about playing competitive miniature golf, what you, Jonathan, would call crazy golf incorrectly. Um, <laughs> play, playing miniature golf as a way of exploring the subject of how much I dislike sport was, mm. was sort of, it, I, there are bits of that book I'm really proud of that, that I think work, but there are a few bits I think I wouldn't do that like that now. And actually, one of the things is I think writing about something you don't like is good for a short article in a magazine but it's hard to sustain over the course of a whole book yeah and and so I think that's why I I bounded wildly in the other direction when I then went on and wrote about the kinks because I mean I wrote that book in about three weeks <laughs> without without taking a breath because I was so happy it was like being mm. it was like being set free to just, I mean, those, to just those enjoy. Are the, the ultimate enthusiasm books those aren't they just yeah like the entire book about one album yeah, but I mean, what's interesting is I can't, I can't really think still. There aren't really many other records I would want to do that for. It, it seemed to me that that was the record that, about which I had something to say in the form of a book. I mean, there are other records that I love and there are other records I'd be happy to write about and there'd be other records I could be interviewed about. But in terms of actually feeding into a set of things that 
that inspired me in prose, I think really Village Green Preservation Society was the one. And that seemed to communicate itself to the people who read that book. I mean, it's unlikely you would have picked that book up if you didn't feel strongly about that particular mm, yeah. Kinks record, right? Mm. But it's a bit like with when you write about a book in a review or in, in Urine Dangerously or, or, or when we do a book on backlisters, you want to understand it well enough to share the enthusiasm. Both in, I mean both communicate an enthusiasm when I say share the enthusiasm, but also share it. Do you want it to be that you want it? To, you want the people who love that book to feel that the book is being represented for the right reasons, and that's always the thing I think you're trying to unlock. That's why we do so much work. <laughs> I mean, you're you're laughing, but genuinely, John and I. Yeah, no, no, I, that's I'm not why we do so much work on it because yeah. You know, if, I, if I, you, I, it, it comes over. <laughs> oh, I well, I, I obviously I hope it. Yeah, it ta it takes a lot of work to make it sound like it hasn't taken a lot of yes, work. Yes, no, 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 um, I'm just trying to say. Yeah, and we always, if we can, we always read. So, if somebody suggests a book, we always read more than one of that mm. person's books. Yeah, because you learn so much about the main book by not just necessarily reading a biography of its author, but just reading another book by the same author. You suddenly see, okay, that, that this is what they do. This is how they mm. do it, better or worse. Um, we've just done a, an episode on Backlisted about a book called The Goat's Song by... Dylan oh, yeah, I've, I've listened to that. Yeah. And as one of my favourite recordings that we've done mm. for quite a long time, partly because none of the internet broke down, uh, which which is these days is a <laughs> bonus. And also, I was uh, while we were doing it, I was thinking, okay, this is going to make a good show. But just I, I'd had the uh, John and our guests Rachel and the, and Patrick McCabe, uh, the novelist Patrick McCabe, had all known Dermot Healy, had all known the author mm. of the Goat Song, and had all read that book many years ago, or been involved with publishing it, or 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 collaborating, or, or what have you. And I'd I'd never I'd never read it. And I said on the show, I genuinely think it's one of the best novels I've ever read. And I've never said that in 140 episodes of Backlisted. <laughs> I wouldn't say it if I didn't mean it. And I, in fact, spent ages thinking to myself, do I want to say that on air? Because I will then have to live with it. It kind of goes on my, on my scorecard forever. <laughs> and I read another book by Dermot Healy called A Bend for Home which is a memoir, and that's absolutely incredible as well. And so my appreciation for the for the one book was massively enhanced by the other, just if, if only on the level that you knew the guy wasn't a one-hit wonder, mm. that you knew that the talent you were seeing on display was a deep one. That and, and, you know, if I had time, which I don't, I would, of course, be now reading nothing but Dermot Healy, but we're on to the <laughs> next thing and on we go. So, yeah. 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 I think we've coming to the end of uh, the usual time so uh, I think we'll draw it to a close is there anything oh, else you want to, is there anything else yeah, you want to uh, ask me to, so what next uh, have you got any more books planned or yes I'm working on another book at the Ooh, moment right. which, okay. which is like the, like the last one is very late um, <laughs> but I learned a very valuable lesson uh, which is I know I don't hand anything over now until I'm happy with it mm. because Fundamentally, I was saying, wasn't I, a moment ago about Dermot Healy and about my opinion on that book being on the record forever. I would have liked longer to work on the first book. And 
I could have fixed the things that I think are wrong with it if I'd had a, an, an extra six months, but I, it was my fault and I didn't. And with Year of Reading Dangerously, I, I felt I didn't want to let that go until I was really happy with it. And it was the book I wanted it to be. And actually, I'm so pleased that I did that because it, it, I think it's a better book. But it also feels I feel far more comfortable talking about it and being aware of what its strengths are and, and its weaknesses are, you know, and understanding more about what I thought I was doing. And so I'm working on a book at the moment, which talks about books again, but also film and music and art. And um, it's a book about how old people like ourselves, Jonathan, <laughs> retain our enthusiasm for those things as we get older. You know, this has been a brilliant example of it today, talking to you. How appropriate is it for me to still feel enthusiastic about a book I first read 30 years ago? Mm-hmm. You know, what if I'd read it and thought, oh, that isn't very good? It, what, yeah. was it my, would that be my fault or would it be Douglas Adams's fault? Well, the answer mm. is it might be both. And, I, you know, I'm a great <laughs> believer that yeah, it's Douglas Adams's fault. Actually, it's Douglas Adams's fault. Um, <laughs> no, I'm a great I'm a great believer that different that, you know, <laughs> when we have to reread a book sometimes for backlisted when John and I have to reread something. Sometimes you think like something I read in my 20s. Sometimes I think, oh, that's a different book. I mean, I haven't changed. But it seems to be a completely different book to the book that I read when I was 25. Yeah. And of course, in fact, that's not the case at all. It's me. Mm. (laughs) You know, the things that mattered to me and my abilities as a reader and my life experience and my taste are all different. They might be better or they might not be better, but they are. I've read a lot more books than I had when I was 25. And... You know that that there are there are pros and cons with that. I'm less likely to find something that's going to blow me away, but I I think it's I think if you stop looking, then you're sunk. Really, you've got to keep going. You've got to keep Mm. looking. Absolutely. And so that's what I'm writing about at the moment. So and then taking like a dozen different topics and having a wander around them and thinking, well, what did I like about that then, and what do I think about it now? So that's Mm. what I'm. That's what I'm doing. And I hope it'll be funny. Mm. There you go. I hope it'll be funny. The famous (laughs) last words. (laughs) It'll be, it'll be, if you enjoyed my Eeyore-ish footnotes in the year of Reading Dangerously, the great news is this book is going to be almost nothing but those. Awesome. (laughs) It's just going to be nothing but miserable footnotes, being angry with the reader. (laughs) I I, I love a footnote. Sorry. Great. Good to you. Good. Good. Well, this is the book for you. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming along. Uh, oh, thanks for having me. What it's fun. Been, uh, it's been fun. Right. Well, this place is intended to be free from adverts, as if anyone would pay to advertise there anyway. But if you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to reward us by buying our books. Andy is on Twitter as I underscore am underscore mill underscore I underscore am. And his website is at mill hyphen I hyphen am dot com. I'm on Twitter as John Pinnock and my website is at jonathanpinnock.com. And do please rate, review and subscribe. You'll find this podcast in all the usual places. Next time, I'll be talking to award-winning radio drama and comedy writer Lucy Flannery about Jasper Fors' The Air Affair. See you then. (laughs) And where's the button? Stop recording now.